Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive show. Today we have on our friend and uh, recurring guest, Max Chatsko. He did this with a uh, quick turnaround time, actually. So, it shows his true expertise in the biotech field. I mean, what, decade of, decade of research compound? Yeah. I reached out to him because I knew it, it, he, would, he would have all this stuff kind of top of mind. Um, and so the company we talked about was Verve Therapeutics, which was right up his alley. And you're going to figure out just how much he knows uh, about the industry, but he also does a really good job explaining kind of the actual business side as well. Um, if you're inter- interested in gene editing, I know we get into the different definitions um, and he'll explain it better in the interview, but if you're inter- interested in that high risk, high reward stuff, you know, this kind of new field, this is a company that may not have revenue until like 2030, right. but it's still interesting to learn about. And if that's up your alley, this will be a must listen. Uh, but before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our friends uh, at Quarter, our sponsor. I've actually been, I'm, I'm nearly a DAU now, almost a daily active user. Uh, if I, especially come earnings season, I'm sure they're going to be a seasonal business because, you know, it's it's an earnings season hit. Uh, but if you don't know what it is, it's basically an investor relations app uh, all in one. You can listen to conference calls from all your favorite companies. Uh, it's It's basically... You've got conference calls, you've got audio, not audio presentations, investor presentations. You can listen to it at two times speed. You can skip to the Q&A. There's a whole bunch of easy, just intuitive features that really help. Uh, and they have more stuff coming down the line. This app has just launched within the last year or so, and it wasn't even early 2021. So they have, you know, they've announced that they're going to have a ton of things coming down the line in future years. So the app is going to get better and better over time. So if you look at it now, it's a little, you know, it's not like some super robust thing, but that's going to just get better and better and better. And the core thing to use it for, at least right in its current form, is for those um, conference calls. And they let you skip to, you know, right to the Q&A, go faster. I like to do 1.2x speed on conference calls because oh. they do tend to be slower, uh, right? You know, they uh, sometimes they can bore you to death. And if you get up to 1.2x speed, it can really help, you know. Well, okay. speed up the process. Quick learner over here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, go ahead, check them out. It's 100% free. You can download them on iOS and Android. They have companies from uh, all over the world. And you can also follow them on Twitter at quarter underscore app, Q U A R T R underscore app. Uh, so go ahead and check them out. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, today we are welcomed by, I think this is either third or fourth time guest now, Max Chatsko. Uh, he's a lead advisor for 7investing. Our friends, this is a good chance to do our shameless plug. Go ahead, use our code CCM if you're signing up for 7investing. Uh, but Max, how have you been? How have things been? I think it's been, I don't know, I want to say two months since we last spoke. Uh, more three, than that. It was months? the spring. Yeah. Spring. Yeah, man. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, all is well in Pittsburgh, but uh, starting to get colder here. I have to turn my heat on soon. I'm not liking that. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about another uh, company, Verve Therapeutics. Another one, I think last time we <laughs> talked about a complicated company, or I forget, we may have done 
utilities. But either way, this is going to be a company that um, a lot of generalists like us, I guess, may have had trouble understanding. And hopefully, you'll clear some stuff up and learn about what. What would you describe this company as? A biotech company, or yeah. So this is a a drug developer, a biopharmaceutical company. Um, and uh, it's working on a new technology called uh, base editing. Okay. And, and, uh, oh, sorry. I was going to say, like, how did you come across this? It seems like uh, I, I never find these companies. So I'm curious how you found it. Yes. Yeah, so I've talked uh, before about, um, you know, the frameworks I use when I'm trying to find companies I want to invest in, or maybe something I want to recommend at seven investing. And uh, part of that, one of those frameworks is uh, looking at the competitive landscape. So there's a company I'm interested in. I want to understand how does it fit in? Is it competitive? What are the advantages and disadvantages? How does it stack up against some of its peers? Um, so when you're doing that, though, that includes looking at both publicly traded companies and privately held companies. Uh, so inevitably, Verve Therapeutics came up in a couple of, of those different screens uh, when I was looking at the competitive landscape. So I've been following this, uh, you know, since it was founded as a startup, and uh, it's got some interesting, uh, an interesting approach to how it's building out its pipeline. Yeah, and what is Verve Therapeutics? What problem are they trying to solve? And I guess in what way? Because from what we were reading, it's in a very, they're trying to solve whatever this problem is in a different way than everyone else. Yeah, so Verve Therapeutics is a CRISPR base editing company. Uh, so we've heard of gene editing, right? With CRISPR <clears throat> gene editing. Um, and then base editing is just kind of like the second generation version of those tools. Um, so the company's specifically using base editing tools or developing these um, to develop drug candidates for cardiovascular diseases. And that's really it's what it's focusing on pretty much 100% right now. Uh, and it's just going to go after certain genes that are involved in, in some of these diseases or cardiovascular risk factors. Um, and try to develop treatments for that that are highly effective and safe and durable, meaning maybe you only need to get treated once in your life. And then uh, hopefully that the durability of the effects can last for many years, maybe decades, maybe your whole lifetime. Um, so, um, you know, if we talk about, um, you know, first generation base, or I'm sorry, we got why. So we, we, we use gene editing. Uh, and CRISPR kind of interchangeably, right? We often kind of only think of uh, CRISPR with gene editing, but that's not really true. So uh, gene editing and the first generation approaches, um, you brought up when we were talking backstage or earlier, uh, you know, the scissors, right? So first generation tools are a little sloppier because uh, they go in and they cut DNA in half. We call that a double-stranded break. And that's at the core of how these tools work for the first gen tools. Uh, and that's actually one of the most traumatic events in all of biology. I mean, when you guys go to the dentist and you get an x-ray, they make you put on a lead vest, right? And that's because, you know, there's certain uh, ill effects from, you know, radiation uh, or if, you know, UV light causes, you know, double-stranded breaks, radiation causes double-stranded breaks, um, you know, ingesting certain things can cause double-stranded breaks. So uh, those things can eventually, if they uh, accumulate over your lifetime, or sometimes all it takes is one double-stranded break in one cell uh, and you can go on to develop cancer. Uh, so there's a, a pretty big long-term risk to making double-stranded breaks. So those first-gen tools kind of have this like looming uncertainty hanging over them. Uh, so the companies that might, are using those right now uh, in within the CRISPR, uh, you know, field are, are you know, CRISPR therapeutics, Intellotherapeutics, Editas Medicine, uh, Graphite Bio, Caribou Biosciences. They're all using the first-gen tools. 
And then, you know, scientists said, well, like they knew this when they were developing them. And they said that would be really nice if we didn't have to make a double stranded break in the DNA when we're trying to fix some of these genes or give people some protection from diseases. So they developed these second generation tools, which are base editors. Base editors are kind of similar, except that they don't make that double stranded break. Uh, so there's a lot of diseases that maybe, um, you know, in the genetic alphabet, there's A, T, uh, C, and G, right? Um, a lot of diseases, maybe an A should be a G instead. So base editing goes in, it doesn't actually make a double-stranded cut to the DNA, but it can convert that A to a G. So fixing that mutation, or it can change an A to a G or, or one letter to a different letter. And just that one little change could disable the gene. So you're essentially knocking out its function and that could provide a protective benefit for certain diseases. So it's a much more precise than some of the first gen tools, theoretically. Um, and you're not making that double strand of breaks. So you're completely removing uh, that, that big looming uncertainty of, hey, you know, these might look great in clinical trials, but what happens three years later, or five years later, or 10 years later? Are a lot of these patients maybe going to develop cancer? Um, and of course, because these are permanent treatments, there's no undo button. Uh, you can't stop giving people treatment after you've given them a gene editor or a base editor. So uh, it might be a a much bigger factor in the minds of the FDA or regulators uh, or even doctors and patients uh, if any of these treatments are approved. So, so base heading has some interesting advantages as a second generation way to uh, maybe, you know, alter the function of genes. And that's the, uh, that's the pencil and eraser approach as opposed to the scissors. Right? Yes. And it's verb is the pencil, just to be clear. Exactly. Yeah. So the first gen tools would be scissors. They're just going in and cutting, coming in like a wrecking ball, right? Miley Cyrus, and the whole you know, <laughs> DNA is cut in half. That's Chaos, probably yeah. not good. Um, that's actually, I, I avoid all those first gen companies. I don't own any of them. Uh, Cause I, I kind of do see it as like almost an existential risk. Um, if all it takes is one of those companies that have data that show maybe, um, you know, some of these patients might have a much higher risk of cancer or significantly higher. However, the FDA wants to define that. And there could be a clinical hold on all of those tools. Um, so, you know, to me, that's kind of a deal breaker for the companies I want to own. Yeah, base setting would be more like a pencil and eraser. It's a little more um, finesse. It's it's much more precise. Okay, and what for Verve specifically? You mentioned the cardiovascular stuff. Can you go maybe a little deeper on how they're trying to solve that problem? Why, like, you know how how it's used? I think they mentioned something about mRNA, and I think people are familiar with that now. How does it like go in? Like, how does, how would the process theoretically work within a human to solve the problem? Right. So in biology, we say uh, this is the central dogma of biology is DNA makes RNA makes proteins. So DNA and RNA are actually the causes, the root causes of disease and health. Uh, but they both encode for proteins and proteins are the drivers of health and disease. Um, so in cardiovascular diseases, there's certain genes that play a role in uh, lipid metabolism. So things like cholesterol, right, to use general terms. Um, so if you have high cholesterol, there's genes that are at play in terms of how they uh, uh, they make those proteins that eventually go and mop up the cholesterol right uh, from your body to keep you healthy. And if those genes aren't producing enough proteins uh, to keep up with that, um, then uh, you know that's how you can have the accumulation of cholesterol and get plaques forming. Eventually, you know that uh, gives you cardiovascular disease, maybe puts you at a much higher risk of uh, you know, a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, all the things we hear about so so commonly. Um, so you can also disable genes potentially, uh, that are involved in those pathways and give people protection. So you would have permanently lower levels of cholesterol, uh, if you could precisely, uh, maybe disable some of those genes that are involved. So, um, 
you know, this is a pretty interesting approach to take. Uh, if you can do it like with a one and done treatment on paper, um, provide a very durable uh, effect. So again, one treatment and then you're, you're done. And maybe for the rest of your life, you uh, just have much lower levels of cholesterol um, because we've altered your genetics in that way. So how, maybe this is a naive question, but how do they then make money? What is sort of the business model? What are the economics look like? So are they like, who are their customers? Do they have any suppliers? Um, and then what are the economics look like on it? Like, are they, would it be a very profitable business at scale? I'm curious how that works. Yeah. So this is still a pre-commercial uh, drug developer. And in fact, it's a pre-clinical drug developer. Verve Therapeutics does not have a single uh, uh, drug asset in its pipeline that's in clinical trials right now. So it's not, none of these are being tested in humans. They do have some pretty interesting data in non-human primates. Um, so those are kind of the, that's the animal model that's maybe the closest predictor of what uh, the drug might do in humans. It's not perfect for everything, uh, but for some of these cardiovascular diseases, we do think it kind of translates pretty well. Of course, you still have to go and run and conduct all the clinical trials. Um, so suppliers aren't really that important for a drug developer, but the customers, of course, would be patients. Um, so typically, you know, for drug development, um, you know, you do discovery research. That's the first step. So you're trying to find and and design your drug candidate against a specific target. Uh, so for Verve, it would be, you know, can we design this therapeutic payload, a CRISPR-based editor um, that's going to go in and actually, you know, precisely knock out one of these genes that's involved in one of these diseases. And then you move into preclinical research. So you're kind of like collecting all the data um, that you would need to show the FDA or, or regulators in whatever region you're trying to run clinical trials within. Um, you need to collect certain data and present that to regulators before they sign off on saying, okay, we think this is going to be reasonably safe. So you can start testing this in human subjects. And then you move into clinical stage research. And of course, that's, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. Uh, and that takes, you know, the whole process from discovery, preclinical, all the way through phase three clinical trials. I mean, it can take, you know, 10 years. It can take maybe seven to 10 years. And sometimes it can be accelerated. Um, so, you know, for verb therapeutics, it's interesting as well. There are treatments that target some of the same genetic targets. They don't obviously act on DNA because these are new capabilities and tools we've had, right, with, with gene editing or base editing. So for the first time, we can actually act on DNA. Um, but there are treatments for some of the same, um, you know, genetic targets. So uh, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals and Novartis have a drug that's on the market now. It's called Lecvio. That's spelled L-E-Q-V-I-O for anyone listening. Um, and that's an RNA interference tool. And that actually acts on the PCSK9 gene. So this is the lead drug candidate from Verve Therapeutics is actually also trying to disable that gene. So RNAi doesn't act on DNA, it acts on RNA. Um, and it just kind of chops up the mRNA that's going to make that protein before it can be made. Um, and that's on the market now. It's probably going to be one of the more successful genetic medicines out there. And that's because uh, the patient population uh, it's pretty large as far as rare diseases go. Um, so that gene specifically um, and this treatment and additionally for Verve uh, are going after a rare disease called familial hypercholesterolemia or just FH. So this is a, a rare genetic condition where um, you inherit you know, a mutation in this gene um, and you just can't keep your uh, cholesterol levels low. It's, it has nothing to do with your lifestyle or diet or anything like that. 
uh, it's caused by this genetic mutation. Um, so Verve is trying to go in and kind of correct that a little bit by turning off that gene in the liver. Um, but eventually the company says, you know, well, there's no reason we can't use this to treat maybe, you know, the general population. People have cardiovascular risk or high cholesterol, the same exact genetic pathways involved. Um, and indeed, we do have other drugs that treat high cholesterol that go after that protein. Uh, so there's another drug Amgen has called uh, Repatha. This is a monoclonal antibody. So it goes in and binds to, in the bloodstream, um, the PCSK9 protein. Um, so same thing, it inhibits that same protein um, and it helps people have much lower levels of um, LDL-C, LDL cholesterol. Uh, so again, you can maybe just go up that stream instead of working on proteins with monoclonal antibodies. Um, you know, the next step upstream is maybe you're acting directly on the RNA. So something like alanine and pharmaceuticals and RNA interference. And now Verve's like, well, let's just go all the way upstream to the DNA. And then, uh, you know, we can act on that. And maybe that's, if that can be safe and effective, it's also permanent. Um, and why the heck not, right? That could, I mean, cardiovascular diseases are really one of the, uh, uh, I think like the largest killer, right? Um, you know, from heart attacks and stroke, uh, yeah, big economic at the, burden. At least in the U.S., yeah. Right. Yeah, we love we love our uh, American <laughs> lifestyles here. So, um, you know, one day and that that's this is not the first um, clinical trials will not be going after like general population. Let's do this on everybody. It's specifically for people with that rare disease. But maybe later they would be able to uh, conduct later clinical trials um, against, you know, providing this this benefit to the general population. That would probably be much later, maybe later this decade, the second half of this decade. But, um, you know, imagine if you could do that. Um, you know, uh, that would be a, a pretty important and big drug for, for various reasons. Right. And that's something that in theory, I'll like, if it's, it's a simple process with hopefully, you know, minimal side effects, that's something a lot of people would want to take advantage of. And when they give out their, you know, investor presentations or in their documents, they talk about the 30 million people with that, you know, rare um, disease. And I think something for investors that people would maybe want to clarify, and I know you don't have exact numbers because they, they, haven't, they haven't reached revenue yet, but what type of revenue ramp and margins do these type of businesses have when they succeed? How, how do you look at that you know, ramp once they, get, once they get approved? Yeah. So um, you know, for a drug developer, uh, you guys kind of hinted at this, right? There's no revenue, there's no earnings, and there's not going to be for a very long time uh, for a pre-commercial company. So drug developers still do have fundamentals. I call them drug developer fundamentals. They just don't have the same, you know, financial fundamentals of a, uh, you know, more traditional business. Um, so for investors, you want to look at like cash collaborations and then the pipeline. In terms of, you know, how much could this uh, generate? I mean, when you're doing that, so um, you know, I've just started learning how to build uh, risk-adjusted net present value calculations very nerdy spreadsheets when you're trying to maybe model out how well some of these drugs might do for various drug developers. So the most important things we'll be looking at the patient population. Um, so you mentioned about 30 million, that might be globally. I think in the U S specifically, it's maybe closer to like 1.4 million for that yeah. rare inherited disease. Um, and that's still, a, that's currently the largest patient population by a pretty wide margin for any genetic medicine. You know, usually, uh, you know, an RNAi or maybe a gene editing tool might be only going after a disease with like, you know, tens of thousands of patients or something, or even fewer than that. Uh, so, you know, once you get over the one million mark, that's that's pretty significant. That's a pretty big milestone for genetic medicines. Um, so that's pretty encouraging, right? And 
Alan Island and Novartis think, you know, their drug could have blockbuster potential. So over $1 billion in annual revenue. Um, so again, you know, Verve has the a very large patient population and uh, a lot of the patients are, you know, it's at relatively high diagnosis rate. So that goes into play too. You know, if you have a hundred thousand patients with a rare disease, but only 10% of them are diagnosed, well, that's going to be a, a challenge for you, right? Even if your drug is approved. Um, but yeah, I mean, potentially, right. And this is still so, so early, um, but yeah, this could be a blockbuster drug, um, just from treating that, uh, you know, genetic condition. Um, and then of course, if it rolled out to the, um, general population many years from now, um, I mean, you know, Lipitor is one of the best-selling drugs of all time at the time. It was the best-selling drug of all time. That was just for, you know, managing, uh, pretty much the same thing for cardiovascular risk and, and uh, cholesterol levels. So, you know, that was like over $10 billion in annual revenue. Um, not many drugs ever get to that mark, right? I think there's only maybe two right now that are currently at that level. Um, so this could be a pretty big treatment. But again, and this is true for all, um, you know, all of these tools, there's already treatments on the market, you know? Um, so as, as, as convenient as it would be to go in and maybe you get an IV infusion for an hour or two, um, if you got like a CRISPR base editor one day, and then maybe you never need a treatment again, um, there are treatments on the market now, like, like Vio from Novartis and Alnylam only has to be dosed once every six months. And it's a simple subcutaneous shot. So you just go into your doctor's office, you get a shot and you're done. So that's not, you know, one and done like a gene therapy or a gene editor or base editor, but you know, once every six months, it's pretty convenient, right? If we're going to be honest. So, um, that can also impede some of the uh, commercial opportunity for some of these drugs. Um, you know, in the minds of investors, it's like, we're curing this, we're providing one and done. And in reality, a lot of the CRISPR and, and gene editing and base editing tools are, are going after markets that uh, already have some pretty safe, effective, and very convenient treatments. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. That might affect how much they can charge for their pricing. It's probably going to bring down pricing for everyone across you know, every therapeutic modality, right? Uh, monoclonal antibodies and, and RNAi and, and base editors would probably have to have lower prices. Great news for patients, of course. Um, but so it's, it's kind of hard still. These are still, obviously, we don't have any data in humans, so it's hard to project much. Um, but yeah, I mean, if successful, best case scenario, this could this could be a very successful drug. In terms of the margins, you asked about that. Um, you know, I mean, we all know how the American healthcare systems work. You can charge whatever you want, so it's pretty great. You have gross margins like in the mid to high ninety percent range. Wow. Um, it's pretty insane. And then, of course, though, operating expenses can be pretty large, right? Um, you have R and D, sales and marketing, uh, general administrative is, is pretty expensive for a, a drug developer. So it kind of depends on the drug and the market, but um, you know it's not uncommon for a uh, once a, a pre-commercial drug developer makes that transition to commercial development. You know, so they have a drug on the market and they're ramping sales. You know, and that can take. I think you asked a question about that. That can take uh, many years to reach peak sales, maybe like three to five years or so um, to reach their peak. Um, you know, but it's not uncommon for companies to still be generating large operating losses uh, as they're ramping sales. So it kind of depends on the market and everything else. And, and often actually uh, companies lose more money <laughs> once they have a drug approved as they're trying to ramp up sales. And uh, again, it's kind of like that, this is maybe a terrible analogy, but like you have a drug approved and then you just go all in on like marketing that, right? And trying to ramp up sales and, and launch it. Um, so you're making that big investment for the big payoff years from now in terms of like, when you are profitable as a drug developer, it's like, you know, uh, pretty significantly margins, right? Maybe um, I haven't looked in a while, so I don't want to say, but well over, you know, 20, 20% operating margins for these businesses. So 
All right. All right. And uh, Verb has about, they just did an IPO. Uh, they have $400 million in cash, or that's kind of a, the rough number I saw on their balance sheet. And I think a lot of investors, you know, would wonder what kind of runway does that give them? I know they have a lot of R&D expenses. Um, you know, how much are they going to have to spend in a rough ballpark before getting to that point, you know, five, 10 years from now when they're generating revenue? Yeah. So this is, this is one of the drug developer fundamentals, right? Cash balance, the all important cash balance. Um, so $400 million, that's a pretty nice uh, stack of cash for this stage of development for this company. But again, it's not even in clinical trials yet. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if the company stated this publicly, but it's um, probably several years of a cash runway for now. Um, you know, it's not spending a whole lot of money right now. It's just still working on preclinical studies. Uh, but of course, once it starts a phase one clinical trial, that's significantly expensive, right? That has some, some pretty big expenses associated with it. A phase two clinical trial is even more expensive because it has more patients. It's longer. There's maybe more interactions with regulators and the FDA. Phase three clinical trials, obviously even more expensive, more patients, maybe even longer. And oftentimes actually you have to run multiple phase three trials simultaneously. So, um, so for now, a $400 million cash balance, that's pretty high for a company of this maturity level. But uh, yeah, it's certainly going to have to raise more money either through um, announcing a partnership. So maybe you can get an upfront milestone payment from a bigger partner. Um, and that can extend the cash runway a little bit. Um, but obviously these companies do dilute shareholders quite a bit. Um, you know, pre-commercial drug developers often conduct uh, public stock offerings over the years, you know, to, to raise money and, and keep the lights on. So, um, yeah, $400 million is not going to get them to the market. Obviously, uh, they're going to need to raise money in some shape or form. Uh, multiple times over the coming years. How does how does a company survive like this if they aren't public? Like, is it just those partnerships, or is there just like biopharma VCs, or yeah. did, are they, is it kind of urgent for them to go public? And this is the Boston, like, uh, right? There's just so much money for biotech in Boston. Is that a big deal too? Like being in that in that area? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, they can't tap into public markets, obviously, if you're not publicly traded. Yeah, there's there's venture capital and uh, a lot of pre-commercial drug developers that are privately held, um, and some of them are actually in clinical trials. Uh, yeah, they don't necessarily have a problem funding, but they might take a a narrower approach to development. So maybe a, a little smaller pipeline, but more focused on an asset or two or three. Um, so they manage expenses a little bit better. Publicly publicly traded companies um, can tend to have much larger pipelines. But again, they have a little bit, uh, they're more liquid or they can access money a little bit more easily. So, uh, but yeah, venture capital uh, kind of fits that role for privately held companies. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for the first half. We've got more questions on the back half. We're going to have a quick break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? 
KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Okay, welcome back in. Now, a little more specifically to Verve Therapeutics. Um, what? Who's on the management team? Uh, who's kind of running the company? And then I guess, what's your uh, take on them? Uh, do you have an opinion either way on them? So the management team at Verve Therapeutics is actually uh, pretty impressive. And it's, it's encouraging to see it too. Um, sometimes in, you know, uh, a drug developer will be founded by like a bunch of lawyers, you know, and they understand the business side of it, but you now do they really understand the, the technical concerns that go into drug development? Probably not. And maybe they lean on advisors or they just hire those people. But um, Verve Therapeutics was founded by um, a number of doctors and the CEO is actually a cardiologist by training. Uh, he was actually most recently the director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Genomic Medicine. Um, and again, trained medical doctor, trained cardiologist, uh, the chief scientific officer and chief medical officer is actually the same individual holds those, both of those roles right now. I'm sure they'll, they will separate those out as they uh, mature a little bit, but, uh, again, he's a trained cardiologist, right? So these are individuals who are, you know, they see the ill effects of cardiovascular disease or high cholesterol. They're dealing with patients who've had heart attacks. Or trying to manage, you know, uh, these biomarkers, these you know high cholesterol levels, so that they don't have heart attacks or a stroke, um, you know. And they said, hey, you know, there's finally this tool here where we can maybe do this, um, provide a lot of benefit for patients. So uh, they went out and you know they they developed and licensed some of the tools um, from other you know institutes or other companies in this case, um, and they're just laser focused on cardiovascular diseases. So. Uh, very good. Very encouraging to see, you know, those individuals evolve from the, from day one, um, because they do understand, you know, what they're trying to do. And, um, they understand it from like a patient perspective as well. So that's always good to see that. Right. And back to some more regulatory stuff, you talked about, you know, uh, the getting to clinical and then getting through phase one, phase two and phase three. So we don't need to go over that again, but one risk that we kind of came up with is, you know, with these companies in general, how much risk do you think there is for the public to not trust the technology? You know, we've seen that with mRNA stuff. Um, do you think that's a risk here or is that, you know, because from a business perspective, that's kind of something, I don't know, I would think about. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And uh, it's something we don't really have the answer to yet, right? I do think that might be a risk for uh, some of those first generation tools. So for most of the other companies that aren't using base editing, um, because again, you know, even the FDA has these questions and we don't know how long the FDA might um, require some of these studies to collect data. So obviously in drug development, there's always a development risk, right? Your clinical trial could fail or whatever, but there's a unique regulatory risk, like additional regulatory risks for these tools because they are permanent and we, there still is some uncertainty about do we want to make permanent edits to the genome with the technology we have today? Because we aren't very precise with it. Um, they do have some potentially really big uh, side effects in the long run. So 
you know, the FDA could say, Hey, look, we might need to, you know, you know, rather than moving to phase two or phase three immediately, you need to follow up with patients for like three years before you even come talk to us again. Uh, so that could actually lengthen the time of, of development here. Um, base editing, again, it's a little more precise. It's uh, potentially maybe a little safer in the sense that it avoids those double-stranded breaks. Um, so that's an advantage. And that might help too in the eyes of, of patients should any of these drugs eventually earn approval. I do eventually see kind of the whole field transitioning towards base editing and, and future tools that don't require double-stranded breaks. Um, so again, we, we talked like, you know, there's we use CRISPR and gene editing to be interchangeable, but CRISPR is just a system that allows us to take the gene editing approach. So there's CRISPR gene editing and there's CRISPR base editing, but there's also other systems, right? There's Arcus gene editing and Arcus base editing, um, or there's Talon gene editing and Talon base editing. So, um, you know, the FDA can, can take different stances on, on these different tools, but um, I, I think everyone eventually is going to move to base editing, no matter what system you're using or what approach, because um, that might be safer. Or, and I think patients would actually appreciate that as well. So when I think about Verve, I think like as a shareholder, if I were to just wait long enough and then there were successful trials, like I would make, I'd make money eventually. It might take longer than I might expect, uh, but I'd make money eventually. But I imagine somewhere in there, there's competition uh, doing, trying to do the same thing. So who are some of those competitors today? Is it kind of a crowded field or are they kind of isolated? So right now, Verve's the only one using uh, base editing to specifically go after these genetic targets. Um, so there's no competition within CRISPR base editing. And uh, again, that's because a lot of the IP is kind of owned by the same like four people. You know, I mean, I'm over exaggerating a little bit, but like there's a lot of crazy licenses and sub licenses within CRISPR tools among like the same institutions and companies. So uh, um, a very, you know, close knit IP web there. Um, now I, I could imagine like, um, another system. So not CRISPR, maybe an Arcus base editor could go after some of these same targets. Uh, so that would be competition within the base editing, uh, you know, therapeutic modalities. And then of course, you know, we talked a little bit about like there's RNAi or there's, um, uh, you know, monoclonal antibodies. And of course those aren't permanent, but sometimes that's, you know, having a temporary effect can actually be an advantage for some of these diseases. The reason I like Verve is like, you know, there are naturally occurring variants within the human population where individuals have these genes that are missing or they're inactive. And there's really, as far as we can tell, no ill effects from that. So if you evaluate, you know, that might not be true for every disease, like genes always play multiple roles in the body. Um, so as simple as it might seem to like knock out a gene, you're disabling it for that disease, but for maybe the three or four other things it does within the body. So that could potentially cause other long-term side effects, right? Um, so I've, I've talked about this on other podcasts, but, you know, Intelli Therapeutics has the first in vivo CRISPR gene editing data. So that's a first-generation tool, and it's knocking out the TTR gene in the liver. And the liver is the only place where the TTR gene is expressed. So all of the TTR protein in your body comes from the liver. Now, the TTR gene is involved when it's mutated or the, that protein as well, uh, it misfolds and then it aggregates, it forms these clumps and that can accumulate in certain tissues. And that's what causes the disease um, that, you know, Intellia Therapeutics is going after. So they said, hey, you know what, we're just going to knock this out. And if that would reduce levels of that, you know, these, these aggregates that form and we'll treat the disease that way. One potential issue with that is that the TTR gene is the only, or one of the only transporters of vitamin A in the human body. So we need that for vision. 
And in fact, you know, if you knock out that gene, individuals are going to have night blindness, meaning they're not going to be able to see in low levels of light. They're going to require daily dosing of vitamin A, which is kind of ironic, right? Because we call this a one and done treatment. And then you eventually need daily supplementation of something else uh, as a side effect. Um, and additionally, there's some emerging evidence that TTR helps to reduce uh, beta amyloid plaques in the brain. So there's some evidence, emerging evidence that maybe low levels of TTR could be correlated to the development of dementia or Alzheimer's. So again, we're, there's like, it's genetics are very complicated and uh, one gene always plays multiple roles in the body or usually. So uh, we have to evaluate a lot of these on a case by case basis, but for the targets that Verve Therapeutics is going after, you know, we have pretty well established evidence just from the, you know, human population. There's natural variants. People are missing these or have inactive versions of these, and there doesn't seem to be any effect at all. So, uh, so this is one instance where it actually makes sense to me, um, you know, like a, a permanent edit could actually make a lot of sense compared to some of the temporary treatments like from RNAi. So I think on paper, if this works, um, you know, base editing for these genes and these diseases actually makes more sense than, than RNAi or monoclonal antibodies or something like that. Um, so again, you know, for competition, think about all those things. You got to think about the commercial market. Maybe some patients are just going to stay on the treatment with RNAi or monoclonal antibody because that's convenient or something. Um, you know, but um, so the, the, these aren't like wide open opportunities. You know, we call them rare diseases, but there's often already treatments that exist for them. Uh, and some of those are also very safe, effective, and convenient genetic medicine. So we don't know how this is going to go, right? No, no uh, gene editor base has ever been approved. Obviously, there's still very early stages, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, in the long run, this could be a pretty big company or, you know, if it works, best case scenario. Um, and there's some other reasons as well that it, it might not be a very big company. Uh, it has to do with the ownership of the opportunities. Okay. And yeah, there's, you know, clearly with a lot of these pre-revenue, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think with this one specifically, it sounds like there's a lot of risks or people can get a little worrisome about testing in humans. Now, this may be a weird question, but we've seen, I guess, recently there was that big news from, I think, Google's DeepMind about they're able to uh, either simulate or build in a, uh, digitally all the proteins in the human body. Do you think simulation could help mitigate some of that risk or is it still way too complicated to, you know, help testing on that front or do any sort of thing on that, in that regard? So I think what you're talking about is uh deep mind has that program alpha fold. Something like that. Yeah. 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 So they could determine the structure of a protein just by looking at the sequence of the protein. Usually with run all these really expensive experiments and they're really uh, expensive machines that are pretty rare and it takes many years. And sometimes that's not perfect because you need to have like, get the protein in the right temperature and the right, it's just very hard to figure it out and just study it. Um, because, you know, when you're putting it in those machines, that's probably not what it looks like in the human body anyway. So if we go and develop drugs against that protein based on the structure we came up with, maybe that's not even how it actually forms, you know, in biology. So um, predicting that, you know, computationally, just from the, having the sequence, that's like a huge, huge game changer. Um, you know, I mean, there's protein structures we've been trying to figure out for like 25 years. If you can just run it on a supercomputer in, uh, you know, a couple of days or whatever, I mean, that's, it's hard to understate how important that is. So that's actually going to accelerate a lot of this research. Um, I guess I'm not sure how it would impact necessarily like uh, companies working on DNA because, um, 
you know, that's a little bit different. Um, it's actually relatively straightforward if you're trying to go and edit genes and, and DNA in terms of like how to design those drugs uh, for the most part. Um, so I, that's kind of why like in teletherapeutics had the data in June and it was like from six patients and the phase one trial is not even done yet. And it went, you know, I think it was valued at like $12 billion or something eventually. And it's because everyone just said, oh, so you know, this is kind of modular. We can just design tools for different diseases. We can, we know we can get it to the liver. We kind of know it's safe and effective. So if you can at least target the right gene, like maybe this is going to just have a ton, you know, it's gonna be pumping out uh, drug candidates and, and drug products years from now. Of course, you know, I explained some of the risks for why that might not be so easy, but um, uh, yeah. Okay. And yeah, the, or go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I, I read something this morning when I was looking at it and Verve jumped like 25% on Intellius news. I was wondering how that kind of corresponded uh, way back in June, but I guess you kind of hit that. Yeah. There's just, there's a, a lot of excitement for a lot of these, like pretty much anything CRISPR, you know, there's like this, uh, it's kind of sucked all the air out of the room in terms of like genetic medicines. And uh, yeah, when Intellitherapeutics had their announcement, all CRISPR stocks rose by a significant uh, amount. Um, you know, so there's just like a lot of excitement among investors. I don't think there's a whole lot of understanding of how this could all go wrong or, or, or things like that. Um, you know, so Verve Therapeutics, I mean, I guess it's been caught a little bit in some of the recent market volatility. I don't know what it's doing today, but uh, um, you know, it, it was valued at like a three and a half billion dollar market valuation. And, you know, we're just in this really weird period of the market. I've been pounding the table about this everywhere I go, but uh, that is very atypical. That's usually not how it works, right? Um, Pre-commercial, pre-clinical companies that are public usually don't even trade over a $1 billion market valuation. So there's, that, that should be a, a sign of how, you know, there's, there's a lot of froth in the market right now and in specific areas as well. You know, we see this a lot with like the CRISPR stocks. They're all trading at some pretty healthy valuations, I'll say. Um, <laughs> healthy you know, is a good term. Yeah. 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 And like, you know, protein degraders, a lot of excitement there. All those stocks rise just because one company announces good news. And a lot of those are also pre-commercial and they're valued in like the $4 billion range or more. That's kind of a little silly. So the problem here isn't, it's not like you're investing in like Amazon and you're just like, well, wait, and they'll eventually grow into that market valuation. When you're investing in a drug developer, uh, you know, they have to hit certain de-risking events, right? In order for them to earn that valuation. So like if you're investing in companies that are kind of where Verve is, and then maybe something goes wrong or they get a delay or somebody develops something that's better and you bought in at like a three and a half billion dollar market value, you might actually never get back to that level. Um, so you have to be careful about what's already priced into shares uh, when you're buying some of these early stage drug developers, you know? It's important to look at not just the opportunities, but the challenges as well, because uh, as we've all seen, you know, even you can have a successful clinical trial and your, 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 um, your share price can still fall. Actually, Editas Medicine just this morning announced some data from their lead drug candidate, their in vivo drug candidate anyway, and uh, their shares are, are actually down quite a bit. Um, not a whole lot of enthusiasm for that company's approach in that specific drug candidate, but, uh, you know, another example, like those results weren't terrible, but, you know, uh, the company's losing a hundreds of millions of dollars in market valuation today. So um, uh, just a different animal investing in, in these drug developers and pre-commercial drug developers, different fundamentals, different metrics that matter. Um, so you do have to kind of be mindful of those things. Right. The Okay. Last one, I guess, on Verve's 
potential and opportunity. In the S1, they kind of give a broad overview of their goal over the long term. Maybe this kind of goes encapsulating more than just cardiovascular drugs. They say, and I'm quoting here, they want to develop manufacturing capabilities to reduce in vivo gene editing medicines at scale. You've mentioned in vivo. You may have already defined that, uh, but can you explain what that is? Because that comes up a lot for investors in these companies. Yeah, perfect. All right. So this is good. This is a good uh, question. Um, so there's in vivo and there's ex vivo. Ex vivo is we're taking cells from you and we're engineering them in the lab. So ex vivo means outside of the body, right? So we, uh, we can take cells from you. We can apply CRISPR or some other gene editing tool or base editing tool in a laboratory setting where we have a lot of control over the process. We make the edits we want. Maybe we grow those cells back up, the edited cells, and then we re-administer them back into you. So that is an ex vivo uh, treatment. And usually that's made, you know, that's, that's to make cell therapies, right? So CRISPR is not the therapeutic, it's more of the tool. And then the resulting cell therapy that we create is the therapeutic. In vivo means inside the body. So this is like, you're sitting in a chair, you're getting an IV infusion. We're putting uh, a gene editor, a base editor into you. And we just cross our fingers and hope it gets to the right organ and it makes all their edits. And we don't have a whole lot of control once we put it into the body, right? That's what all the preclinical studies are for. We're trying to like really make sure we optimize all of those different metrics. So Verb Therapeutics is only working on in vivo tools. Um, so everything we talked about was an in vivo base editor. So that just means like the actual therapeutic is the base editor. Um, so that's what base editing means. I mean, I'm sorry, that's what in vivo means. Um, the company is predominantly just focused on cardiovascular diseases, though. I, I don't think it's going to um, uh, move into a different therapeutic area. So like treating cancer or something, it could, but I think it's going to have its hands full and the opportunities is quite large enough in cardiovascular diseases. And remember, you know, a lot of the founders and executives, board of directors, um, trained cardiologists, medical doctors. So, um, you know, this is their focus and uh, I think they're going to be quite busy with that for some time. Additionally, <clears throat> if anyone's read the S1 filing, you know, you guys have, maybe I always encourage other investors to do the same thing as well. You'll see that, uh, again, re relating to that intellectual property web for CRISPR tools, uh, the company's licensed a lot of its tools, a lot of its IP from Bean Therapeutics. That's the other CRISPR-based editing company that's publicly traded. And Beam Therapeutics actually has opt-in rights to all the programs at Verve. So it can opt in after, uh, I think, the last patient is dosed in the phase one uh, clinical trial for its lead drug candidate. And then Beam can split the development and maybe later the commercial costs 50-50 with Verve Therapeutics. On the one hand, you want to see companies that are this small and this immature uh, actually land partnerships. Um, hopefully with a, a deep pocketed partner, because that will actually spread risk around, right? It helps to de-risk the development and the financial side of things, um, right? If Beam Therapeutics opted in, for example, uh, Verve Therapeutics would probably receive some type of a upfront payment. So that would extend its own cash balance and it would be splitting the development costs. So that would preserve cash or help the cash runway go a little bit longer. But of course, the flip side of that is if the drug's ever approved, well, Verve Therapeutics is now only getting a 50% cut instead of 100%. For these areas, this is important to bring up, um, for cardiovascular in particular and cardiometabolic diseases, you know, these are, this is a therapeutic uh, area where you, re you require very large clinical trials. 
so a phase two clinical trial for any of Verve Therapeutics uh, drug candidates might need hundreds of patients. And it's going to be long, right, to, to conduct that. And the same thing with a phase three clinical trial. We might even see a thousand patients eventually if they get into the general population studies years from now. Verve Therapeutics, those are not strengths of this company, right? And that's going to be insanely expensive. It doesn't have the commercial infrastructure in place. It doesn't have global infrastructure. It doesn't have like regulatory teams like that. So we see a lot of these tiny companies, um, what's kind of been going on in the field lately, and this is true for all of drug development, you see the startups and the small companies, they focus on the science and that's, they're moving the field forward in that way. And then they kind of go to partner with like an Eli Lilly or a Novo Nordisk, like, you know, large companies with established expertise, global footprint. They know how to run clinical trials, you know, that are thousands of patients. They know how to deal with the FDA. They know how to eventually scale uh, sales teams if something's ever approved on the market and ramp those sales. And of course, they have a lot of money, right? Um, so we want to see Verve kind of partner with some of these more established companies in these spaces. But of course, that's going to uh, reduce the economic opportunity for the company. So investors do have to keep that in mind. Um, as amazing and as large as some of these uh, you know, opportunities are, these diseases it's going after, you know, it might only end up with like 20% royalties on all the drugs it develops. I think the scientists who founded the company would be pretty pleased with that. And from a societal standpoint and the healthcare system, that'd be great, right? If these work in a best case scenario. Um, but you know, for investors, this might not be like a $100 billion drug developer. Uh, of course, it's still quite a bit smaller than that. So I think if it works out, you're going to be just fine. But um, you know, do have realistic expectations and do read the S1 filing because a lot of those details uh, are pretty important for, for you know for investment. I'll say we didn't read the uh, the whole thing. It's 800 pages. Uh, so we read. <laughs> I read. Uh, I try to read some of it, but uh, you know, how do you go about trying to do valuation work on a company that's pre-clinical trials? Is it just kind of, you're just taking like, does TAM actually matter here? Because I know we usually disregard TAM with some things, with some companies we look at. So I'm curious, just how do you even try valuing a company? Yeah, I also hate TAM. I'm happy you said that. Um, yeah, it doesn't really come into play here for drug developers. Again, like they'll always say, you know, uh, lately we're seeing in, in uh, gene editing and base editing, you know, companies will say, well, you know, there's 10,000 human diseases that uh, we could potentially treat. And that's uh, not really accurate at all. Have you heard um, of the globe? We have, you know, that's yeah, our yeah. <laughs> um, or they'll say how many millions of patients might have the diseases that they're going after. And again, like no drug ever treats 100% of all patients. So, and and not 100% of patients are diagnosed for that matter. So it's uh, um, always some trickier math if you read the fine print. But um, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just don't. How do you evaluate these? So what I do, I mean, you know, I have a different frameworks, but I've been building these for over a decade. So uh, I start off with, I actually start with a technology that I'm interested in, right? So let's say I was looking at base editing. So old Maxi here starts with looking at all the nerdy scientific literature. And, uh, you know, scientists are like, it's not like an investor presentation, you know, they're not just like, we're going to change the world. Yeah. Uh, scientific literature is dry. It's boring. It puts you to sleep. Uh, but they they just go over like, here's what it could do. Here's where the challenges lie. So you get a pretty uh, balanced um, um, and objective take of like what the technology might be able to do. And I read different studies across that. So for the same technology, then the next level up after I understand like, you know, advantages and disadvantages of any tool, uh, I'll go look at the competitive landscape. Right. So I'll say, OK, who are the companies in base editing? Um, and then, of course, you can't just focus on that. 
Because again, if you only focus on base setting companies, you might be like, well, Verve's the only one doing it. They're going to own, they're crushing it. Uh, but if you just look into other therapeutic modalities, uh, you see those RNAi companies working on it. There's monoclonal antibodies working on it. There's going to be some other tools working on it. Um, so you need to be careful in how you determine your competitive landscape. You need to look at both the diseases that they're going after and also the tools and technologies. Um, and of course, if you read if you read through the SEC filings at that point too, you'll you'll see like there's also some weird ownership of of some of the CRISPR IP, and that's true for everybody. Uh, and then after that, maybe I'll look at you know I'll try to find like what's the best one or two companies or however many, and then I'll really focus in on that. So I'll read the SEC filings. I'll maybe just get acquainted with them. Sometimes, oftentimes I'll, not in a pandemic anyway, but uh, I'll try to meet with management or tour the facilities or something, right? Um, so you can just ask more pointed questions. You can have some off the record conversations as well. Uh, and sometimes after all that, I, I don't decide that anything meets my criteria and I don't invest at all. Um, but you know that helps you to kind of get a good gauge of what's out there. So I think a lot of investors start with like the, you know, uh, my last step there, right? But I take that bottom up approach uh, so I try to just laser in on like, what's the best one or two companies in this opportunity. Um, so that's what I do, but you know, I've, I can also like understand the technical details of things. So, uh, hopefully I can convey those to anyone who reads my work as well. But, um, so most investors might not have that and a, a top-down approach can work as well. Right. If you, you're just like gene editing is cool. We're going to own all those companies and the winners will make up for the losers. I mean, that's not my approach, but that is, that is one approach, but yeah. For preclinical companies, you obviously don't have any data to go on. You have to be careful about translating animal model data. Uh, you can't just say, wow, it worked in mice. It's going to be awesome. Like a lot of times that actually doesn't work, right? And one way I put it, this is, you know, getting a long-winded answer here for you guys. Sorry, but, uh, you know, um, everything looks good in mice, right? Like by definition, if something's in phase one clinical trials, then it looked amazing in preclinical trials, right? Like that's how it got to clinical trials in the first place. Um, but still only 8% of drugs that ever reach phase one reach the market. So still a lot of failure prone uh, or a high failure prone field here. So keep all those things in mind. So all these things are just discounting, you know, how much, like everything that you said there, if it kind of turns, maybe there's negative potential, that's just another thing that you're going to discount. And mm -hmm. those all add up to how much you're willing to pay for the, a certain stock. Right. Right. So you know, here, I mean, let's see, it's, uh, I guess we'll just say it's at a two and a half billion dollar market cap. Who knows the market could go up or down another 10% by the time this publishes, right guys. Yes. But, uh, you know, so in this rare disease it's going after for the lead drug candidate, um, you know, there, again, there's treatments on the market. Um, some of those are pretty safe, effective and convenient, but yeah, maybe this can be a blockbuster there. And, um, companies typically, you know, a drug developer, like a really, really, really basic rule of thumb is like companies tend to trade at five times peak sales, um, you know, of their, of their, you know, drugs, of their drug portfolio. So, you know, if this ever got to a $1 billion uh, in annual revenue, you're looking at like a $5 billion market cap, but you would also have to price in the pipeline. So some of that would have value. And then, you know, there's some crazy ways to do that. But so, yeah, I mean, we, this could easily be a, a company that's valued over $10 billion in time. But it's certainly, I think, a little expensive given like relative to what it is. Um, I do think like eventually when they get some of their first data, if it's good, we might have like the same thing happen with Intelia. I don't know if it'll go up to the same exact market valuation. And who knows where the stock market will be doing by then. But, um, you know, people might start to read through that and say, well, everything in the pipeline is going to work. So, you know, there's always a lot of nuance and context you have to kind of keep in mind. But um, yeah, 
what you guys said at the, at the top here, you know, this is an early stage company. If you did want to put a little bit of money in this or, you know, um, and you understood all the risks and everything, if it works, you're probably going to be doing just fine. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily wait until it's like a hundred percent the risk, right? That's kind of the point of investing in these pre-commercial drug developers. But um, yeah, I don't know. No, that's a great overview. I was yeah, going to, our last sure. question was going to be on risks, but I think we covered those. So why don't we try? Yeah, that. I think that's all we have. Um, thank you for coming on. So can, where can anyone find you? I know you're uh, not the most active on Twitter, but yeah, don't find me. I'm uh, I'm in a cabin in the woods. I'm trying to get away from all of you. Um, <laughs> now, uh, if you look at the seven investing Twitter handle, I'll be, uh, you can find me from there, but I'm at seven, the number seven, uh, Max Chatsko. Good luck spelling my names, but uh, again, you know how to find me. I'll be on Twitter somewhere. I'm not very active, as you guys said, but uh, you know, I I try to go for quality over quantity, guys. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> one more time for the shameless plug: you can find him at Seven Investing using our code CCM. Exactly, and you're on. They, you guys have other like podcasts and video stuff and articles that you're doing. So if anyone's, I mean, interested in this sort of biotech stuff, I mean, you got your back catalogs. You know, it's. It'll be bigger a few years from now, but you guys get a lot of back catalog on, on the seven investing stack for anyone that can research. Correct. Absolutely. And uh, I actually have an article. It's about 80% done on exactly this topic, gene editing, base editing, pros, cons, advantages, challenges, all that stuff. Um, so that should be out in the first week of October. Just a little teaser. Perfect. Okay, perfect. Sweet. All right. Well, I'm going to try to hit the outro without uh, butchering it. So we are not financial advisors here at uh, Chit Chat Money. So anything we say or discuss is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions uh, in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.